So it's good to be back uh, preaching. For those of you that have maybe been out, um, I've been out of the pulpit now for three Sundays, so so it's, it's refreshing to have breaks uh, from preaching sometimes, but I'm, I'm excited to be back with you. And so we're, we're actually picking back up where I left off in Ephesians. And so uh, we believe in the Bible here at Mosaic Church, and so we just preach the Bible. It's pretty ordinary. And so we preach verse by verse, uh, chapter by chapter kind of thing. So today we're in Ephesians chapter 6, uh, beginning in verse 5. Let me, let me kind of remind you where we're at as far as the the book of Ephesians goes and and kind of where we're headed today. Uh, We are in the section of Paul's letter to this church at Ephesus. In fact, it's a a circular letter, so it would have functioned in a a variety of different churches. But we're in the section uh, that most commentators kind of identify as, as the household rules of conduct. In other words, kind of the, the, the front end of Ephesians is, is really just loaded with, with these doctrinal truths and, and, and kind of the back end is, is how that plays out in our lives. And in this section in chapter 5 and 6, Paul has really been really fleshing out for us what the gospel in our marriages look like, uh, what the gospel in our parenting looks like, and today we're going to look at what the gospel in our work life actually looks like. Um, before coming to plant Mosaic Church last year, uh, I was an associate pastor at a church in Colleen, Texas. And uh, Colleen, Texas is, is an army town. Uh, it's just outside of the gates of Fort Hood. Uh, so Fort Hood, Texas, lots of, lots of army uh, community there. And in this church, there were a lot of, um, let's just say, varying ranking people in that church. Uh, if you've never lived in a, a military town or you're not familiar with military, it kind of operates in this weird dilemma of, you know, officers and, you know, uh, soldiers and, and high ranking and low ranking. And there's just kind of these weird tensions. And uh, one, one Sunday in particular, I remember uh, going to church. Uh, I'm the pastor there and I'm, I'm at the front and we've got a, a, a high ranking officer in our church. Um, and, and I know he's a high-ranking officer. He gets a lot of respect in our community. And he's been a part of our church for, for many, many months. It's months in, in, in military life because they turn over so quickly. But he's there in the lobby area. And in walks a young guy who I had actually invited to church. A young guy, wasn't a churched guy at all, but he decided to, to come into our church. And he walks into the lobby, and he stiffens up real quick. And... Um, at first, I thought it was just the awkwardness of walking into a new church, which we all stiffen up doing that. But, but what I realized was that he knew who this high-ranking officer was. And he didn't hand salute, but it was close. I mean, he, he said, good morning, sir, you know. And the thing this high-ranking officer did has, has shaped me. It's changed me. He opened his arms up, and he hugged this kid. And the kid, was just, he didn't know what to do. <laughs> you know, like, that's not how the military operates. So he just hugs this kid and he says, good morning, Rollins. He calls him by his last name because they probably don't even know each other's first names. And he just hugs him. And it was in that moment that I got to see how the gospel breaks down things in our lives. And, and it kind of it, it works through these tensions, even authority and work-related tensions. And, and the same thing's actually happening in our passage today. Um, if you've glanced at it, and maybe perhaps your Bible has given you a hint at it, the, the section of this is called Slaves and Masters. And 
uh, Paul is writing on a cultural reality that was happening in Ephesus at the time. In fact, most scholars think that about a third of the population in the city of Ephesus were slaves. They were, they, they were enslaved to these, to these housemasters. And let me just kind of do a little disclaimer before we kind of move into the text. What Paul is not doing here is he's not making a comment on the acceptability of enslavement. He's not. He's simply acknowledging a cultural phenomenon and a reality of, of slavery and masters, and he's applying the gospel to it. Uh, my, kind of my second half of my disclaimer is that the enslavement of the, the, the first century Bible times is not the enslavement that we have known. It is, not the, it is not an ethnically, racially based enslavement of people. It just wasn't. In fact, it wasn't even an obligation. It was oftentimes voluntary for someone to, to come into the care of a master. In fact, they would become part of the family. And so it's different from the enslavement that you and I think about when we hear that word. However, Paul is still not making it an acceptable norm for the Christian. He's simply applying the gospel to it. So here's the tension that Paul is going to cut through. It's how does the gospel inform our work relationships? Because that's actually what was going on here is, is slaves and masters went to the same church. Okay, they, they walked into the lobby, as it were. It was probably a home. But they, they walked into church with these kind of these preconceived notions about the relationships in their work. And we're going to see how the gospel actually cuts through Tension like that. So let's let's attend to God's word. I'm going to be reading uh, verses five down through verse nine of Ephesians chapter six. If you have a Bible, you can follow along. If not, we've got the words projected for you up there this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask him to bless the preaching of it. Father, we come now to your word and we ask for your help. Lord, without your help, these are simply ink on a page that fall on dead hearts. And so, Lord, we pray that you would make our hearts alive and that you would bring your word to us by your spirit. Lord, would you do this all for your own name's sake? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. For those of you that know me, you know I'm not a super handy guy. Object lesson today, hammer. For, for those of you that are listening on podcasts, I'm holding a hammer. This is extremely odd. I'm not a huge object lesson guy, but I'll give it to you today. The, the hammer can be used for a variety of things. In fact, the hammer can be used creatively. In fact, me as a non-handy type of guy have used the, the hammer in many different ways. I've, I've used a hammer to dig a hole before. I have used a hammer as a measuring stick before. I have certainly used a hammer as a weapon of mass destruction. We gutted houses in, in New Orleans post-Katrina, and we, we put the hammer to work. I've even used the hammer as a back scratcher before. I mean, let's be, it just works. But the purpose of a hammer 
is not those reasons. The purpose of a hammer is either to drive a nail or to pull a nail. That's, that's a, its original function. That's the purpose of a hammer. You see, our problem is that when we think about work, we think the primary purpose behind our work is to preserve our lives and to promote our own self-worth. Now, now, work certainly does that. It does give us preservation. It provides. It, it puts food on the table. And it, it, it does give us worth. It gives us value. It gives us identity. It gives us something to do with our hands, which God rightly has directed us to do. But my aim today is to show you from this passage that that's actually not the primary purpose for work. It's an implication of it, but it's not the primary purpose of work. Here's my big idea for you today as we look at this passage. Is I want you to see that the purpose of work is to serve and exalt something beyond yourself. In fact, we'll see it's to, to, to serve and exalt someone beyond yourself. But that's the primary purpose, is to serve and exalt something beyond ourselves. Uh, the passage really, I, I, I kind of fumbled a, a few ways around to handle it, but, but it really largely hangs on two kind of arenas uh, for us to kind of consider. And, and so these are my two points today, if you're a, if you're a, note a good note-taking Presbyterian. Uh, two points today are the workplace, and then we're going to look at the reward. Okay, so the workplace, and then the reward. Um, one of the things the Bible does that, that sometimes we miss out when we read it in English, it's not that we have to have the Greek to understand the Bible, it's not what I'm suggesting, but one of the things we miss out on is wordplay. You see, there's some wordplay going on in this passage for us today, and it's loaded in the two people it's addressing, slaves and masters. The word for slaves is, is, is doulos, it's, it's, it's a bondservant. Now, if you've read the New Testament much, you'll know that Paul often calls himself that. He says he's a slave for Christ. And so there's the, the bondservant as a slave of Christ, which we read in our confession of our assurance of pardon this morning. And then the second word is, is master. And, and in the Greek, that's kyrios, and that's the word Lord. It's the same word that's used to, to talk about Jesus. Now, it, it's not always the object of a, of a deity. It's not always the object of worship. It can be used in earthly matters like it is here. But what Paul's doing is he's playing on these words in order for us to engage with our faith into the ordinary things of our life. In other words, he's saying, just as you are a slave to Christ and just as Jesus is your Lord, so also in your earthly life and in your earthly ways, you ought to operate in this way. Um, Paul has not done this in the other sections of Ephesians. He has not made the, um, the interaction between, let's, for instance, in the early parts of chapter 5, husbands and wives, and then parents and children. He, he's doing something different here. In other words, he's saying that there is a, a, a mutual reciprocation of the way we're supposed to act to each other. So the husbands and wives section, was they, they act differently towards each other. The, the parents and children, they act differently towards each other. But here, if you look in verse 9, Paul simply summarizes for the masters. He says, do the same thing to them. In other words, the way I'm going to tell you to act towards your bosses, bosses, you act towards your employees. It's mutual. Well, so so how, how does God operate in those realms? Well, well God always gives authority. 
Um, you know, if you're a millennial, there's kind of always this, we're always kind of jabbing at the millennials right now because they're so offended by things. One of the things that the millennial culture is offended by is the idea of authority being over them. But God has always operated in the realms of authority. He's always operated through governments and lawmaking. Even in his church, he operates through officers, elders, and deacons in, in caring and shepherding for his church. He operates in the household, in marriages that way. He operates in our parenting in that way. So authority in and of itself is not a bad thing. But the way that it's produced or the way that it comes out of the Christian ought to be different than the way that the world tells us. So so how does Paul tell us to relate to each other in our workplaces? Well, he says, first, slaves, you obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Fear, I've connected that idea to the joy. It's not always this idea that you're just shaking in your boots, although we'll talk about that in a minute. It does make a suggestion there. But, it, but it's not a fear that produces an anxiety towards the other person. It's a fear that produces a joy and a delight and a reverence. You see, the, the, the trembling aspect of it, that word means what it means in the Greek, what it means in the English. It means to quiver, to quake, to shake, to come to show some sort of external response to an internal reverence. Have you ever met somebody that you have a deep reverence for and it affects the way you approach them, perhaps? I've had a couple of those instances. One of those instances was when I was able, in my young Christian walk, to meet one of my favorite pastors and preachers and theologians. Uh, he's a Baptist preacher in, in Minneapolis. Some of you have probably heard of him. His name's John Piper. John Piper, he's written many books, and one of his books really deeply shaped who I am as a Christian. And I was at a conference, and I knew that I would have an, a chance to interact with John Piper on some level. And, and mostly I knew this because I knew where he was coming in and out of the stage from. Yeah, I was, I was kind of the creepy stalker guy for a minute. But I had one of his books, and I wanted him to sign my book. I wanted an autograph. I'm just, that's all I wanted. And I thought I'd just kind of casually go up there and say, hey, hey, Johnny, can you, uh, you know, sign my book? You know, I thought it was going to be it's real low-key encounter, and it, and it wasn't that. You know, if any of you know John Piper, he's an extremely humble man who carries himself with a lowly demeanor. And, and John was up there, John, John, Dr. Piper was up there, and he was walking towards the stage. And, and it wasn't right before he was going to speak. It was kind of before a session. And he's just humbly holding his Bible. And, and I approached him, and I think I called him Pastor Piper or something. And, and, and the reverence in me started to come out physically. Like, I, I basically buckled up. I, I had his book. And I, and I kind of addressed him, and he kind of just looked at me like, yes. And, 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 I, and there was like this physical struggle for me to get the book into his hand, get the pen out, and, and to ask him for what I wanted. And, and the reason that was is because I had such a deep reverence for who he was as a man and as a Christian and as a leader, all of those things. Well, you see... The connection is that we ought to be handling our relationships in all of our lives, but, but even in the workplace like that, that there should be this deep reverence for others in our lives, regardless of how they've treated us, because why? Well, because that's how we are to respond to Jesus. That's, that's what the text is, is going to show us, is that our response to others and our interaction with others ought to be like the way we respond to Jesus. He tells us not to do this as people pleasers. You guys know what people pleasers are, right? The, the, the eye service people pleasers, 
That, I love that translation. This translation's done a good job. This is, this is the, the word kind of behind this is this idea of, of a busyness that can be seen. It's this idea that it's, it's a, when it's convenient to be known, right? And so Paul's telling us that, that the way of earning and, and respect and, and obedience in the workplace is not to just be busy or to appear important or to, to put out this outside activity when there's really an internal kind of lull concerning the work. You see, here's the, here's the application. Let me, let me flush this out in, in your workplace for you. The application is your place of work is a large arena for your faith to work. Um, you see, your life is primarily a large web of relationships. Um, we tend to compartmentalize our lives as Western kind of Western-minded people. We tend to think about you know family here and work here and church here, and and we we compartmentalize and we and we put these walls up, and we operate in those arenas differently. You see, what the Bible's compelling us to do is to consider the good news about Jesus and then to apply that to the large swath of your life. The web, as I'm trying to paint the imagery, the web of relationships that God has put you in in all of the different arenas that you're in. Now, I know you, and I know many of you have been kind of walking in in Bible-believing type of churches before. And uh, this is a Bible-believing type of church. But, but many of the ways that we can bend this is, is we go into those arenas or those webs of our lives, and we go in there with an agenda. And the agenda is to evangelize, right? So, so what I'm supposed to now tell you is to go to work and evangelize, tell everybody about Jesus, and bring them to church. And there's nothing wrong with evangelizing and bringing people to church. I want us to do both of those. But the gospel's so much bigger than that. You see, what the gospel's compelling us to do and what Paul's telling us to do is to serve and love others without an agenda. In fact, he's telling us to do it as though we're serving Jesus himself. So why would we serve and bless others in our workplace? Because it honors Jesus. And it's that simple. It, it really is. Like, I wanted to come up with some profound way where we can kind of manipulate the way you're, you're doing your work, but it's really that ordinary. He's telling you, have a deep reverence that changes the way that you navigate your workplace. He's telling you to love and serve others to honor Jesus. And so here's where the, the kind of the tough gets going, is how do I do that in my workplace? In other words, not just how, the kind of the practicality of it, and we'll talk a little bit about that, but rather the why. If it's just that kind of that blanket Christianese, yeah, we're going to love and, and serve Jesus in the workplace, and that, that kind of sounds good and clean on the surface, but I know your workplaces aren't that easy to operate in. So the gospel truth, the, the, the promise of good news is actually hidden in verse 8 as we look at the reward. So let's look at verse 8 in a little more detail. This is, kind of, this is the meat of the sandwich. If you notice, I, I dealt with kind of the, the, the slave section and then the masters at the bottom, and I left the meat because that's actually where the promise is hidden. Here's our temptation. Our temptation is to be seen and heard to be known and vocal, to be movers and shakers. That's what, the, that's what the world tells us to do. But 
what the New Testament's actually showing us is that selfless service and quiet humility isn't unnoticed. In other words, though we want to be seen, known, moving, and shaking, God tells us to be quiet, still, serving, loving, with humility, and he sees it. The misconception about Christianity is this. You think this, because I think this. You think that God rewards you based on your efforts. You do. You think that when you do good, you get good. And when you do bad, you get bad. It's how we operate. It's how our hearts, our sinful, fallen hearts operate. We think that when things are going well for it, it must have to do with something I've been doing. My church attendance has been spotless. My quiet time has been superb. My worship music has not left my car. K-Love all the time, all day long. That's why things are going well. Well, the problem with that is, is that though that, that may appear in your experience to be true, the reality is that when you do bad, you don't always get bad. Because the promise of the gospel is that God gives you good because Jesus earned it for you. Notice in verse 8, there is no flip side of the coin. The text says, verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. That's the part you believe. But it doesn't say whatever bad you do, you'll receive back from the Lord, does it? You see, the good news is that the other side of the coin is missing. And the reason that is true is because Jesus took all all of your badness upon himself. He took all of your questionable ethics. He took all of your laziness. He took all of your cutting corners. He took all of your desire to be made much of, and he bore the wrath that should have come to you for that. You see, Jesus came as the perfect man, and he lived the perfect life. Did you know Jesus had a job? That Jesus took up the family trade as a carpenter, now, the scriptures don't give us a lot of details about his life between age 12 and 33, so there's some speculation, but, but we know that he worked his father's trade, and so we know he understood your work tensions. He did. He was in the marketplace purchasing products. He was dealing with pagans. He was dealing with people who would eventually put him to death. And so Jesus, understanding and knowing every tension that exists in the workplace, he did the thing that you couldn't do. He perfectly performed. He never uttered hatred towards a coworker. He never murdered people in his heart for the way they treated him. He didn't. He never faltered at any moment, yet he willingly took the death that should have come to people who do that. And so the reason verse 8 is good news for you and it's good news for me is because though you failed Jesus in your workplace, he never failed you. And so here's the best way for you to work as a Christian. The best way to work as a Christian is to put the gospel to work. So here's where it really gets real fleshy, real earthly, real practical. How do I bless and serve my boss who mistreats me? The boss who looks over you constantly for promotion. The boss who refuses to, to give you the wages that perhaps you've earned. 
the boss who, whether it's verbally and aggressively attacking you, or maybe it's the passive-aggressive boss who constantly comes behind you and changes the things you do. How do I bless and serve a boss like that? How do I honor someone with reverence whom reality hits, I don't really like them all that much? And the answer to that question is you put the gospel to work. You see, you can bless and serve the undeserving because God has blessed and served you, the undeserving. The only way that you can take the fall for someone who doesn't deserve it is by believing that Jesus came and did the very same thing for you. Anything less will fall short. Anything less will be your attempt to either persuade or earn favor, not only in your boss's eyes, but ultimately in God's eyes. Or maybe you're not a boss. Maybe you're an employee, someone who's under the authority of others. Well, how do I, uh, or I'm sorry, maybe you are a boss. How do I bless and serve others under my authority? How How do you bless and serve people who are petty and divisive, who bicker and slander and gossip? They're God haters. How do you bless and serve people like that? Well, you put the gospel to work. You do the very same thing. You see that God loving you in the way of all of your pettiness, in all of your undeserving ways, in the ways that you've gossiped and you've envied and you've been divisive and you hated God, he blessed you when you least deserved it. See, the greatest thing about Christianity is that God didn't simply send us a book of rules to follow. He sent us a person who showed us what that looked like. He didn't simply send us a manuscript to read and to plug and play in our workplace. He sent us the God-man who came and put on the boots and he walked our walk. He understands us in our fullness. All of the complexities of your workplace, he understands. All of the complexities of your emotions, he understands. See, Philippians chapter 2 is the, the Christ hymn that often we are called to to observe. Philippians chapter 2 says to us, it says, to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Instead, he took the form of a servant. He humbled himself, and he did it even to the point of death, even death on a Roman cross. You see, the gospel is the only solution for all of the complexities of your work life. It's the only thing that would ultimately resolute and resolve all of your tensions. So here's a question I want to hang out for you to consider. I want you to not in theory, but in very real terms, think about your workplace. I want stay-at-home moms to think about their work dynamics. That's kind of crazy to think about your employees. I want small business owners to think about their workplace. I want our government workers to think about their place. I want our teachers to think about their place. I want our intel workers to think about their place. I want our retired people to think about the space and the web of, web of relationships that God has given them. I want you to put faces, even in your own mind, right now. Okay? They're there. Your workplace. And then I want you to listen to this question. What if the only encounter that your coworkers or employees ever had with Jesus was you? 
what if the only in the flesh encounter that they had with a Christian was you? Now, on the one hand, that can be extremely daunting, challenging, and it could crush you. But on the other hand, it could be extremely freeing. Because what God is calling us to do is to go into our workplace not to evangelize, but to love, serve, and bless others the way that we have been loved, served, and blessed by him. That's all he's calling us to do. It's nothing extraordinary, complicated. You don't have to write out a game plan for it. You don't have to have tracks in your back pocket. You don't even have to have church invites, which I frequently give you to hand out at all times readily available. You have to love, serve, and bless others. That's what the gospel compels us to do. And though it sounds simple on the surface, it's extremely profound. And the reason it's profound is because ultimately what we're doing is not loving, serving, and blessing just the people in our workplace. We're loving, serving, and blessing Jesus himself. I want to conclude uh, with a story. Um, I've had a lot of jobs, a lot of random jobs. I'll throw a, I've worked at Best Buy. I've, I've made pizzas. I've delivered Amish furniture. Uh, I've had a lot of, lot of jobs. But, but actually, the, my longest reigning job was in the restaurant industry. I was, I was a server. I was a waiter for many years. I worked all the way through college and seminary in the restaurant industry. And one of the things about the restaurant industry, if you've ever been in that, is you meet a lot of seedy and salty type of people there. It's just, it's a nightlife kind of crew. It's just a different, it's just a different venue. And I loved every minute of it. And in college, I had just become a Christian. And I was working at Papado's Seafood Kitchen, fantastic restaurant, in Phoenix, Arizona. And there was this, this man, I guess he was a man, we were, I felt like a boy at the time. I was probably 20, he was probably almost 30. And he knew I had just become a Christian. And he, had been, he really was discipling me at work. Uh, his name is Ken Klukowski. Ken Klukowski, uh, he's, he's a character. So Ken Klukowski was a man who was, who was in transition. And restaurants are a place where a lot of people in transition fall because you can, you can kind of jump in, you can make, make some money, earn, pay your bills kind of thing. And that was who Ken was. Ken was an extremely overqualified server and even an overqualified Christian. Ken was, he was in between going from, from his master's to going to law school. And, and in fact, Ken would turn out to be, he's an author now, he's a legal analyst, a policy analyst in D.C. He's like... He's this big deal. Like, I literally saw him on Fox News a couple weeks ago. Like, literally. So he's like this real deal. And, and I remember vividly on a shift with Ken. Um, I did not have much to offer Ken by way of, uh, you know, encouragement in the faith. I was a baby Christian. I didn't know much. And um, in the restaurant industry, if you go into the restaurant five minutes before they close kind of peeves us, just, just letting you know that. So Ken and I, were, we were the closers that night. Ken and I were closing down the restaurant, and a table walked in. And it was kind of like a flip of the coin, who's going to get the last table, and, and well, Ken got it. And Ken was not happy about it. Ken was ready to go home. And me, little old baby Christian me, saw Ken in the back, this man who had been discipling me, showing me these great truths of, of Scripture, I just have this deep reverence for this guy. He's in the back kind of moping, getting things ready to go to the table. And me in this, this moment of boldness and brilliance, which I don't have many moments like that, this moment of boldness and brilliance, I went up to Ken, and I, I, this is a vivid memory. I literally grabbed him by his back, and I turned him around, and I told him, you go out there, and you serve that table like Jesus is sitting at it. 
and it broke him. Like, I don't know, I don't know where I came from, but it, it undid him. It really did. And uh, he came back to tell me the next shift, how it really affected him. And, and that was my simple understanding of the gospel and how God calls us to work in the workplace. I, I just told him, you go out there and you serve that table like Jesus is sitting at the table. You see, the purpose of your work is to exalt and serve someone beyond yourself, namely Jesus. So in all of the things that God's called us to do, we are called to be a blessing. We are blessed to be a blessing. May we do that as we even go into the workplaces, even this week, and consider what God has for us there. Let's pray and ask him to bless those ends. Father, we... um, We honestly have a love-hate relationship with many of our jobs, Lord. We love them because you've provided them for us. Lord, we hate them because it's toilsome oftentimes, Lord. Because of the fall of humanity, we now work with thorns and thistles out of the ground. That that work is not easy. It demands much from us. It can oftentimes consume us. Uh, But Lord, I pray that you would give us a fresh vision of our work. That you would show us how to relate to others in our workplace, our bosses, our employees, our coworkers, our equals. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be the best employees in this city, that you would help us to go not with an agenda, uh, simply just with an agenda to love, serve, and bless others. And so, Lord, would you help us to do that because without you, we can't do it. We need your help. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.